Radio. I am the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And today my guest is Tina Ketchy Stearns, and I'll be introducing her in just a hair. But since we always get new listeners and our, our base is all around the world, I just like to tell people about who we are and what we do. Bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks uh, was created because my mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt as a daughter very disconnected to services, and I thought there's got to be a better way. And so our radio platform is just one of our platforms. We have a blog, a resource website. We do dementia chats where I interview people who are what I believe are the true experts, those actually diagnosed. And um, it's just been a lot of fun. We've been doing this since about 2009. Uh, it's a wonderful job to have because I get to meet all these fantastic people doing these cool things all around the world and hopefully connect you to resources that you need. You see, we really are an advocacy-based company, one that believes that, you know, together we are stronger and that it's the only way that we're going to find a cure or find comfort and support is by, by working together. And so I also have to thank you each for your loyalty and your support because every time you like and click and share um, any of our formats, you know, you are you, you're playing a huge role in shifting our dementia care culture because you're allowing um, this information to get to your friends and your colleagues and in your tribes on Facebook, on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever it might be. And we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in need of this information that we share here. And, you know, sometimes people aren't ready to grab it, but the more they see it, the more comfortable they get. And so you're making it easier for people to reach out and get that information. And I know that that the power of one of each of you is working because Alzheimer's Speaks has gotten some huge recognitions. One by Dr. Oz is the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's um, from Maria Shriver as an architect of change and from Oprah as um, a health hero for 2018. And I don't say that to pat myself on the back because I've never seen Alzheimer's Speaks about me. I've seen it about all of us. And to me, it's just, um, you know, those accolades we share with all of you because without each other, we just wouldn't be. And so I want to thank you for that. I also want to remind you that, you know, maybe you could be the next guest on our show too. So if you, if you have an idea, a concept, a tool, you know, um, give me a holler. Maybe we can have a conversation on air about that and, and share that with the world and, and get things going. Now, before I introduce Tina, I want to just give a shout out to a couple of my favorite um, companies out there. One is called the Call Alert Center, which is wonderful if you have children or pets or are caring for somebody, or maybe you're a business travel. Um, it's a very inexpensive way to be set up in case of an emergency, in case somebody would go missing. And you can get a 20% discount on our site. So if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com, you'll see the little coupon code for that. But it's under like $15 a year 
just to have that peace of mind to be set up. The Alzheimer's Research um, and Prevention Foundation is lovely too. They they really take a holistic approach to life. So they're going to talk about food and diet, meditation, and all the things that we can integrate into our lifestyles to, to live better, to be more healthy. And then last I'm going to mention right now is Calendar Cards is hosting a directory for the memory cafes in the U.S. And you can just go to memorycafedirectory.com to get that information. Uh, it's just, it's really easy to use. If you have a memory cafe that you want listed, um, contact them. They will input it for free, help get the word out about these support groups that are for people with dementia and their care partners. So enough chit-chat. Let's get started with our conversation today. Tina Ketchy Stearns has worked in hospice for over 12 years, and she educates people um, from medical professionals to the public at large. So she's got a large heart and a wealth of information that she's going to share with us today you know, talking about this end of life journey. And, you know, none of us are getting out of here live. So we, we better think about this and have some conversations about advanced um, care planning and caregiving and grief and, you know, loss and, and how a person who's diagnosed, who's leaving us feels as well. So she's educated over 50,000 people from 25 different countries around the world. And she has her MBA from Wake Forest University, and she, she lives in, um, in North Carolina. So welcome, Tina. Thank you. Well, this is a really important conversation, so I'm glad that we're having this. And, and I, haven't, I haven't had this conversation for a while, but it's such a critical one. And it's one that needs to be refreshed. I know there's more and more stuff happening in the news about end of life, you know, and what each state is doing and different philosophies and stuff. But let's start with having you talk about the H word. What the heck is hospice? Because I think there's a lot of myths and stigmas attached to that word. Oh, my goodness. There so is. It used to be the C word. Yes. Cancer diagnosis and that just meant you were going to die, just boom. And um, now hundreds of thousands of people are living with cancer. So hospice is so unbelievably misunderstood. And what I want everybody to know is what it is and what it isn't. Okay. What it is is end-of-life care when somebody is anticipated to have an end-of-life prognosis of six months or less, and they're no longer seeking curative treatment. Now, every doctor's crystal ball is very foggy, and they will be mm -hmm. the first people to tell you that. So if their best medical estimate is the end-of-life is likely within six months or less, and you're no longer seeking curative treatment, then you are eligible for hospice. Let's say they missed the call, which they often do. Mm -hmm. The six months comes and goes, and the doctor continues to estimate end of life within six months or less, then it just rolls forward. Now, on the flip side of that, some people may perk up, and that's quite common in hospice because the hospice and palliative care practice, the specialty, uh, and it is a specialty like cardiology is for heart and oncology is for cancer. Hospice and palliative care is a specialty 
And what they specialize in is pain and symptom management. So it's quite often and common that when someone comes under hospice care, they do perk up because those people can make them feel better. More times than not, the perk up is temporary and then the decline continues. But sometimes that perk up is quite significant because again, that doctor doesn't know for sure when you're gonna die. But yeah. in the current situation, he, he or she is estimating mm -hmm. six months or less. If you get better and perk up so much that the doctor no longer can estimate six months or less, you're discharged. You're discharged and you go live your life. And when you need hospice care down the road, they'll be there. That actually happened to my mom. My mom um, was, you know, took a turn. Um, she was in a nursing home and all of a sudden she was losing weight. She wasn't eating and she was starting to have tremors and, and significant almost seizure type things. And so they put her on hospice. And I mean, we thought it was the beginning of the end. And then, you know, at the end of the six months, she was still there. She was doing much better. And she was taken off. And, you know, she did not die. It was um, three or four years later. Yeah. You know, and then she was put on hospice. And that time, it was a very short period of time, you know, that mom was on hospice. And, but, you know, she just wasn't ready to go. Right. Just wasn't ready. And I'm so I'm I'm really kind of thrilled that you have that personal experience because so many people think, well, you sign up for hospice and now you got to go die, and, and by the way, you need to do it in the next two weeks. And so that you experience that that is not the way it is. Yeah. Um, I often use the example of if somebody has some kind of issue. Let's say you broke your leg mm -hmm. and you have to go to the hospital. Well, at some point, you're gonna improve to the point where they discharge you. And that's exactly how hospice works. If you prove, if you improve to the point that they can no longer estimate six months or less, then you're discharged from hospice. And like you said, none of us are going to get out of here alive. So when that time comes that, okay, well, now we think we are in a six months or less uh, situation, then you just re-enroll. And one of the, my favorite stories that I tell is um, the hospice that I was involved with a woman, 101 years old, entered hospice care. Uh -huh. She died at 104. And in that time period, they discharged her three times. <laughs> but you know, how nice is that? It's, I think what people have to understand is that hospice, and I want you to kind of address palliative care and the, the difference between the two. You know, it's about, it's about comfort care, true comfort care. And it's about, you know, saying, okay, you know, we're okay with this. There really isn't anything else that we can do. Like Barbara Bush said, I don't want any more treatment. I'm, I, I've lived a full life, is able to go ahead and deal with that. And I thought, you know, she's going to spark a lot of conversation around this and a lot of education, I think. I was absolutely going to bring up Barbara Bush because those of us in hospice and medical professionals that deal with people at the end of life, that term comfort care is familiar to us, but a lot of people don't understand what that means. Mm -hmm. and so, To your point of what's the difference between hospice and palliative care, what is even that crazy word palliative? Um, the root word palliate simply means to ease. Okay, palliate means to ease. So if I had a cold and a bad cough and I took cough syrup, 
it's not going to do a darn thing for my cold because there's no cure for the common cold, but it's going to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. So that's palliative care. So oftentimes I'm standing in front of a group of people educating and I'll, and this is something that my um, medical director at the hospice I was with uh, would do. And I thought it was genius because it's such a good visual way to think about it. So if you do a big circle and everything in that circle is palliative care, anything that's pain and symptom management within that palliative circle is a smaller circle called hospice. Hospice is six months or less prognosis, no longer seeking curative treatment. All of hospice is palliative, but not all of palliative is hospice. Yeah. Okay. So if somebody is not quite ready for hospice because they don't have the six month or less prognosis, but maybe they've got pain and symptoms related to their illness, Mm-hmm. They can still get palliative care. And when Barbara Bush said she did not want any more curative treatments, I'm sure she was getting a lot of things in the hospital that had to do with all of her medical issues mm-hmm. that were life-sustaining. When she decided she did not want any kind of life-sustaining treatments, that's when comfort care simply means, I just don't want to hurt. Mm-hmm. Just, Treat my pain, treat my symptoms, and, and, and that's all I want at this point. So that's yeah. what comfort cure means. Yeah, and it's, I mean, who doesn't want to be comfortable? You know, and you see so many people, and again, it's, it's their choice, and a lot depends on the odds and the percentages and stuff. But you, you see people go through the chemo and the radiations and, and how sick they get. And, you know, some pull through and do marvelous but there are others that don't and their quality of life, you know, is on, is on the edge and, and not just for them, but for their families and stuff. And so, you know, this is something that every person has to decide for themselves and then have a conversation with their family and friends about what is it that you want. And there is no right or wrong answer. And there might be times too, because we ran into this where, a doctor, some doctors don't believe in hospice and, and others are like all over it. And so again, if, if hospice is something that you feel that you need um, and you've been given, you know, a kind of a short term, you know, likelihood there, you've got a right to a second opinion too, is my opinion, to get somebody who can help you through that process. Um, and you made, you made two fabulous points just then that I want to reiterate. So when you said it's everybody's choice, and it absolutely is everybody's choice. So when I said hospice is six months or less and no longer seeking curative treatment, mm-hmm. let's use cancer as an example just because it's easy. If I had cancer mm-hmm. and I have a six months or less prognosis, that makes me eligible for hospice. But let's say I want to fight it till I take my last breath. That's my right. I get to do that. So even though I'm eligible for hospice because I do have a six month or less prognosis, I would not be appropriate for hospice because I'm choosing that curative path. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yep. Okay. Yep. And then you're, you're coming about the physicians. Some get it, some don't. You know, that's one of the reasons I, I just feel so and passionate about educating people about this because the general community oftentimes has so many myths and misunderstandings about it. But you know what? The medical community does too because they don't really get that much training about this type of thing 
because they go to medical school to cure your illness. Yep. So, yep. you know, we, we avoid things we're not good at or that mm -hmm. we don't know a lot about. So a lot of the medical professionals just haven't gotten the training they need to feel comfortable and confident having these conversations. And I gotta tell you something, I am a baby boomer. Are you a baby boomer? Oh yeah. Okay. 10,000 of us are turning 65 every single day. So these doctors that are very uncomfortable having these conversations with their patients and their families, we got to get them comfortable with that because they're gonna be doing a lot of it in the next 30 years or so. Yeah. Very good point. And we run into the same thing with dementia. A lot of doctors aren't um, aren't well educated in that area or even diagnosing of that. And so there's a lot of misdiagnosis or undiagnosis or even there's even been reports where doctors have made the diagnosis, but they haven't told the patient because they don't know how to give them hope. You know, yet there's so much hope um, yeah. in terms of, of you know, in one of your phrases on the ribbon, I think it, it says it's about how how you live. You know, it really is about that choice. And, you know, do you want to embrace life or, you know, what do you want to do and how do you want that to look like? And uh, again, I don't think anybody should be ridiculed for their choice. That's uh, right. That yeah. ribbon, you mentioned the ribbon. That's actually not my ribbon. Mm -hmm. That ribbon is the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization's ribbon. Mm -hmm. And they gave me permission to not only use that URL as my website address, but also to put their ribbon on my website. And I love it because every hospice doctor will tell you we're not helping people die. Mm -hmm. We're helping people live until they die. Yeah. Well, and even that statement, I think, helps the doctors understand the process, you know, so that it doesn't have to be this, this doom and gloom. I, um, I will share a story with you um, quickly that is just to me so powerful, but my my aunt was dying. She had cancer and I was uh, sleeping and I had this dream that my uncle, her husband came to me in this dream, though I didn't realize it was dream at first. And he, he came to me with this brilliant smile and his arms out. And he just said, tell Kay it's time I'm here and tell her it's time. And, um, and I remember waking up, wanting to talk to him more and then realizing, oh my gosh, she's been gone for years. And so I'm like, well, now what do I do with that? So I thought, oh, I better get in the shower and go down to the hospital and see my, see my aunt. So I go down to the hospital and the, the nurse, who was a hospice nurse, grabbed me before I went in and she just said, honey, I just want to tell you something. You know, she, you know on a case on, on, um, on hospice. And she, she most likely is not going to be able to communicate with you. She's probably not going to squeeze your hand. She's, her eyes most likely aren't going to open. And, and the likelihood of her talking and responding to you is slim to none. But know that she can hear everything and take in everything that you say and you do while you're in that room. So you just tell her whatever you need to tell her. So I go in this room. I'm all alone. And, and I'm, I don't know. I'm in my, I'm in my 40s. And... Um, and I, and I hold her hand and I start rambling and I'm telling her about all the family updates and I'm thinking, oh, how do I tell her that Uncle Chuck came to me in a dream? Because she's going to think this is kind of crazy because in my mind, she was a very strict Catholic and I just didn't know if she would believe 
in that. Right. And so I talked for 45 minutes over everything and nothing. And then I finally just said, okay, I'm going to tell you why I'm really here. <laughs> and I'm and the whole time I'm talking to her, I'm holding her hand and she's just sleeping in the bed. And, and I explained to her that Uncle Chuck comes to me in this dream and he looks brilliant and full of life and his voice is just boisterous and he's laughing and he's just so happy. And he's got his arms out and his eyes are glistening and he's just, um, and he's saying it's time and that he's here with you and he's here to take you home. And all of a sudden, I'm going to get teary eyed. Her eyes pop open. She gets this beautiful smile and she's looking up at the ceiling and the room got chilly. I mean, it literally got cold. I mean, it was just filled with angels and and then she squeezed my hand and her eyes closed, but this smile remained on her face. Oh. And I stayed with her for, I don't know, probably a half an hour to an hour more. And then I went home and, and two hours later, I got the call. She had passed. Mm. And I just thought, what a gift. It was such a gift to me to be able to help her pass on, you know? Oh. So awesome. And I was so honored that, you know, Uncle Chuck picked me to come to, you know, and the, the kids were, his kids were a little upset. Why didn't he come to, to us? And I said, you weren't ready. Mm -hmm. you, you weren't ready for the message. And they yeah. understood that now. At first they were, they were a little upset with me and stuff. But, um, you know, it's just, death and dying can be just as beautiful as birth. Oh my gosh, that's so true. That is so true. Um, I love that story. There's so many stories like that where some people will wait for somebody to mm -hmm. sort of give them permission. It's it's okay to go. Yeah. Somebody that's already crossed over has come back saying, "Come on, come on, I'm ready for you." Yep. Um, I used to probably saw that cartoon they did of Barbara Bush and her daughter that she had lost at the age of three. Have you seen it? No. Uh -uh. Oh, listen, it was, it's, I don't remember the cartoonist's name, but it's Bar. it's obviously in heaven. Uh -huh. Barbara has a halo over her head uh -huh. and there's a little girl, you know, she lost a little girl when she was three. I think it was, there's, mm -hmm. a, I think her name was Robin. There's a little girl, you see the back of the little girl running to Barbara Bush and the uh -huh. little girl is saying, mama. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, yeah. I know. If any of your listeners, I would imagine so you have so many, many of them would be veterans. I want to share a real quick veteran story that's kind of similar sure. to yours and that a uh, hospice veteran volunteer went to a hospice home to visit a veteran patient that was uh, in hospice care. And when he got to the room, he knocked on the door and the wife came to the door and he said who he was and he was here to, to, you know, say hello to her husband and thank him for his service. And she said, you know, I really appreciate it, but he really is pretty much, he, he's very close to dying and, and he's not even going to know you're here, but thanks anyway. And this fellow waited for a second and he said, okay, well, can, can I just come in and just put my hand on his and thank him for his service? And he wasn't intrusive. He did yep. it really respectfully. And she said, sure, come on in. So he comes in, he puts his hand on the patient's hand. The gentleman was in the bed, clearly very uh -huh. close to mine. And he, the volunteer introduced himself. He said, uh, I just want to thank you for your service. I was in the Navy. And that patient's eyes popped open and he said, Navy. Oh. And they talked for 30 minutes. Wow. 
and he talked about how those were the best years of his life and the volunteer was a little nervous that the wife would get it. <laughs> those were the best years. And so after about 30 minutes, he was obviously getting tired. And so the volunteer left and the wife walked him out and he said, ma'am, no, for sure. The best years of his life are with you. Said, oh, don't apologize. I thought he was gone and he came, you know, he, he talked to you. I couldn't believe it. And the man died later that night. Wow. So, you know, when people connect on all kinds of different levels, whether it was your uncle coming to deliver that message to your aunt yeah. or veterans, or uh, sometimes people will wait for everybody to get there before, okay, everybody's here. Okay, now I can go. And some people yeah. will wait till everybody leaves the room yeah. before they, they go. But it's all very, it can be such a beautiful experience. Just like you said, just like a baby, when a baby's born, it's a gorgeous moment and end of life can be a beautiful experience if all those conversations mm -hmm. have been had in advance so people aren't arguing about should mama go on the ventilator should she not or should she yeah. have this and that and huh, all those things yeah when my when my dad died he was uh he was on hospice too and you know he got pneumonia and, you know, they said, well, we can give them the pneumonia shot. And the whole family's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no. And everyone looked at me like, what do you mean no? And I said, it's not going to make dad better. It's not going to make him who he was. He's not going to get out of the wheelchair. He's still not going to be able to talk. He's not. It, it's just going to get rid of the pneumonia. And I don't think that's how dad would want to live. We've had many conversations. Right. So we talked as a family and everyone agreed we weren't going to give him the shot. And my dad still hung on. And one one evening, and it wasn't a, a lot long, but it was, I don't know, maybe three days later, um, my brothers came up, and he was, again, in a nursing home and um, to check in. And I was, at this point, just staying with him 24-7. And I went to walk my two brothers out. And my younger brother said, it was the right decision. And he said, I'm going to come back in with you. And my dad, I believe, started the process when we were in the parking lot. Because when we got there, you know, it, it, he didn't last long. But he, he stuck around, I believe, that Scott was comfortable. Yeah. But Scott just needed a couple more days, <laughs> you know, right. with that process. But it was, it was a really beautiful thing that he, he was settled with that, you know? And you, you hear stories like that all the time, all the time with people, or like you said, why, you know, they, why, didn't, why did they die alone? Because they knew it was gonna be too hard on you, or they couldn't leave you. Or I have to tell you, I was doing an education at uh, a college, so obviously young kids about mm -hmm. advanced care planning, and we often talk about your perfect last day. So uh, <laughs> I recommend, so why don't you start with describing your perfect last day on the planet? Because that can be fun. That can be anything. Yep. My perfect last day, I'm really starstruck. And so I'm going to go to the Oscars. And after the Oscars, I'm going to have a filet mignon and a lobster dinner with a beautiful glass of champagne. And then when it's time to go to bed, I want Louis Armstrong playing It's a Wonderful World in the background. I want somebody baking a cobbler of some fashion so I can smell it. 
I have a list of people I want to be sure are there. And then I have another list of a few people I want to be sure are not there. <laughs> and I want somebody holding my hand. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if they have to do round the clock shifts. I want somebody holding my hand. So that's my perfect last day. So I'm sharing this with these young kids saying, you know, you can go home and start these conversations with your family. And this one young gentleman said his perfect last day, he described a few things. And then he said, I want all my family and friends there, but right before I die, I want everybody to leave because I want to do that by myself. This young college kid said that, knew that's what he wanted. Isn't that interesting? Wow, that's great. Yeah. So I just yeah. have to make sure everybody else knows. Yes. You know, and the tricky right. part is how do you know when it's that last breath, you know? Well, yeah. And, you know, there's there's signs. I mean, the people that work in hospice, there are certainly signs that yeah. can help people feel like, you know, I think we're getting close, whether it's days or weeks. But, again, nobody really knows. Yeah. And, and I did want to share with you, so I worked in hospice for over, actually, 13 years. But I'm now uh, – working in the long-term care community with a memory care unit. And it has been the most lovely, wonderful experience to get to interact with those residents. And the woman that hired me at hospice 13 years ago passed away this past October from early Alzheimer's. Wow. Yes. Um, Her mother had it, died from early Alzheimer's in her 50s. Her aunt, her mother's sister, same thing. And so my friend was always worried, you know, throughout her life, she was going to get it. And sure enough, she did. And she had it for about eight years. Um, But I was so honored to walk that walk with her from when Uh she was struggling, remembering a few names to at the end, you know, actually, probably a couple of years before she died, um, she'd actually lost her ability to to talk. Mm -hmm. And and ultimately, she was no longer mobile. But, um, but it, it was just an honor to be able to connect in the various and sundry ways that we could connect. Yeah. And she was a social worker by trade and her son went to became a social worker as well. Uh-huh. And she would reach over and tap my hospice badge. Uh-huh. And that meant she was so proud that her son was going to be a social worker, just like his mom. Oh, yes. Very cool. Yeah. It was, very- it was very cool. Very, very cool. Now, um, I know you've talked about there's different levels of care in hospice. Can you kind of explain what those levels are? Yes. So first and foremost, I want a lot of people to understand or everybody to understand. People often, one of the myths is that there's one big, huge hospice and they're all sort of offshoots of the same big hospice. Mm -hmm. That is not so. All hospices are separate and independent. And the analogy I like to use is the faith community. Mm -hmm. All churches are in the faith community, but they're all separate and independent. And Mm -hmm. that's how hospices are. So there's probably multiple hospices in the county where you live. Mm -hmm. I know you have people from around the world watching, and I'm not 100% sure how, how that is throughout the world, but I can certainly tell you, in the United States, in the county I'm in, we only have about 300,000 um, uh, citizens, and there's probably 12 hospices that serve mm-hmm. this county. So understand that you have a choice in which hospice you go with. Some are for profit, some are not for profit. I'm not saying one's any better than the other, it's just two different models. Um, 
But what I'm getting ready to tell you to answer your question about the four levels of care is all hospices should be offering all four levels of care. So the number one thing hospice does, it provides care in the home. And if you live in an area that has a hospice home, a brick and mortar hospice home mm -hmm. where your loved one can go, a lot of people think that hospice is a place. Mm -hmm. But the number one thing hospice, hospices have to offer care in the home. That's the number one thing that they're about because 80% of us say we want to die at home. Mm -hmm. So the first level of care is care in the home. Second level of care is what's called general inpatient. Mm -hmm. When you go to the hospital, that's an inpatient bed. So if somebody does have a hospice home, and let's say we're caring for your loved one at home, and maybe the pain and symptoms are just getting way out of control beyond what the family can handle, then it's great to have a hospice home where the patient can come and get 24-7 care. And just like in the hospital, the goal is to get them stable and get them back home. Because mm -hmm. again, 80% of us say we want to die at home. If your hospice does not have a hospice home, then that hospice should have contracted with either a hospital or long-term care facility so mm -hmm. that they can provide that inpatient care. Mm -hmm. Third level of care is called continuous care. So the same scenario, we're caring for the loved one at home, things are kind of getting out of control, out of control pain or vomiting or whatever it is that's more than the family can handle, but this patient never wanted to leave their home. Mm -hmm. So in this case, a nurse comes into the home, not just for a visit, but they stay continually. That's why it's called continuous care. So they'll do round the clock shifts until the person stabilizes. And then when everything's stable, it just reverts back to the visits. Now, Lori, often what's going on is the patient is actually beginning to actively die. Mm -hmm. And so for that patient that never wanted to leave their own home, hospice looks at that as sort of their last best gift that they could give that person that never wanted to leave their home. So we got routine home care. We've got inpatient care. When you go to either a hospice home or a facility, the hospice has been licensed with to provide that round the clock care or continuous care where it's round the clock care, but it's, in your home. Mm -hmm. The last level of care is called respite. And a lot of your listeners are caregivers, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the patient is could be doing great. They're fine, they're comfortable, they pain and symptoms are being managed, but the caregiver is about to fall in the floor. So this is when the patient, the hospice patient, can go into the hospice home for five days simply to give the caregiver a break. Mm -hmm. Okay. And again, if your hospice does not have a hospice home, then long-term care facilities in your community likely offer respite care. Okay. Well, and so many people don't understand respite care at all. You know, they're like, what does it mean? It doesn't, doesn't give me a clue. So people don't know even how to ask for it because it, it doesn't, it's just one of those words I wish that was different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, respite is really think of it as rest the caregiver yep. needs to rest yeah and here's a really sad story so i'm talking with a patient family in a hospital the gentleman has cancer he's about done with his treatments he's kind of had enough um so it's the patient his wife and the son and the daughter mm -hmm. and 
they need to understand what is hospice. So I'm going through exactly what I just went through with you. And when I got to respite care, the son was mortified. He said, I think that's horrible that a caregiver would not want to take care of their loved one, that they would want to send them somewhere. I just think that's horrible. Well, the look on that mother's face, her face just dropped to the floor because she was exhausted. And she had said to him, it had probably been two weeks since she had had a full night's sleep. And this poor lady so desperately needed respite care. And that son just, he just didn't understand it. He didn't understand how exhausting caregiving is because he's an adult child and he didn't live at home. Um, And that mom helped him understand that it's not a bad thing. We can still go visit, but I kind of need a few nights of good sleep in order to be able to continue to take care of your dad the way I want to. Um, So that was a hard conversation. Well, I think so many people don't understand the weight, you know, even though someone wants to do it, it still can get out of balance and we've got to keep both people healthy. That's right. Um, Otherwise, you know, we're not helping anybody. That's and, right. and um, you know, so I think some of it is our terminology that we use and understanding that being healthy, um, we need sleep, we need to eat, we need social interaction, we, we need to feel like we're, we're part of something else as well, That's you know, right. and connected. And, um, and that helps them also transition for the final change. That's right. That's right. And Again, I'm involved with the long-term care community that has a memory care unit. So when it's no longer safe for your loved one to be at home because you have to go to work and, you know, you don't want to lock them in the house. What if the house caught on fire? Well, now they're locked in the house. You don't want them in the middle of the highway. Um, So I just think one important thing I want, I want, especially medical professionals that are listening to this, um, just because you have Alzheimer's or dementia does not mean you have to be in a locked unit. Um, the facility where, where, that I'm involved with, we have lots of people with cognitive impairments, various levels of dementia, some even maybe some Alzheimer's. But, but if they're not exit-seeking, mm-hmm. they don't have to be in a locked unit. The, the locked memory care units are to keep them from, you know, silver alerts. You know, going out and, and winding up down the road two miles. Um, so I just want that to, I want the medical professionals that are listening and also the caregivers that are listening, you know, don't think just because your loved one has a dementia diagnosis that that means they have to go into a locked unit because that's not true. That's not yeah. true. You never know when someone's going to wander, but, you know, my mom was one of those two. She was very content to just be in a safe place that she knew and was comfortable with. And, um, you know, if, if she left, it was with somebody else. She was misdiagnosed for like 10 years. But when we got the formal diagnosis, they kept telling us it was hormones. And my mom would say, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones. You know, she knew. <laughs> and uh, the, the report from the doctor said she's got the mentality of a three-year-old. Don't let her out of your sight. And here, you know, they had just moved up to the lake at the end of the peninsula, and we were just like, uh, what are we going to do now? But, but my mom was never a wanderer. She loved her home, and she had her routines, and my dad was always, you know, if they did something, they always did it together. 
And again, there's no guarantee to anything in life. Same with that. But, you know, there are so many different ways to even have a locked ward too. And what happens on those locked wards? I would just interviewed somebody over in the UK and they have built this beautiful community and people have full access, but the whole, the whole place is censored. So they can see footprints of where somebody is at. They have all the elevators are open. You can just walk up to them. But if it's not your elevator, like different levels have different elevators, the doors won't open. You know, so they've done they've done a lot of cool technology things. And then outside they can walk around because the grounds are on the inside of the building. It's like a campus and stuff. So there's, um, you know, an Abe's Garden, you know, down in Tennessee is a locked unit. But it's I mean, they've got so much freedom, you know, and everything is open. What people think of a nursing home years ago you know, dark, dingy, strong smell of urine, people moaning, no one's really communicating, sliding out of their wheelchairs. That's, that really isn't what it's like today, or it sure as heck shouldn't be, you know. I have to tell you, so you were talking about being baby boomers, you know, we changed the way we birth babies, mm-hmm. and boomers are going to change the way we live the winter season of our lives. Yep. Uh, we're not okay with the, that old, you know, horrible stereotype of what a nursing home used to look like so there's so many wonderful advancements and they're just going to continue to be more and more i know i learned of a uh, community that was um, opened here recently in north carolina and they have an exercise room Mm -hmm. so i don't know this would be for people with alzheimer's or dementia maybe but just to to share with you one of the advancements is the let's say this little lady sits on the machine and they adjust the handles like she needs and the seat height and all that, get it to fit her, go through all the machines, and then she gets a wristband. When she comes back to the exercise room, they scan her wristband and the machine automatically adjusts to her setting. Oh, cool. Isn't that great? Wow, they should have gotten all gyms. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you said early on that there are lots of things to be hopeful for. And I really believe that as time goes on and, and, and the need grows, because again, those baby boomers are aging, um, there's going to be some wonderful advancements so that, you know, the whole goal is to, it's about how you live. It's enhancing life, making the most out of every single day. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up in case any of your uh, listeners or viewers have not, um, don't know this. You probably do. Um, a gentleman that's in my area, Ed Shaw, co-authored a book called uh, "Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade: The Five Love Languages and the Alzheimer's Journey." Have you heard of that? Yep, I have heard of it, and I haven't had him on the radio though. I should. Oh, you should. He's fabulous. His he cared for his beautiful wife who had Alzheimer's for eight or nine years. Uh-huh. Um, but what? he taught me is that even when your loved one is no longer able to communicate their love to you of all the areas of the brain that dementia Alzheimer's messes with the one part that is never damaged is their ability to receive love. Yeah. Now that's hard for a caregiver to constantly give, give, give when the, when their loved one can't return it or maybe even being combative or mean or, you know, 
some of those behavioral issues that can sometimes happen. But I, I do believe it should be so comforting to every caregiver to know my loved one, this disease has done a lot of things, but it has not affected their ability to receive love. Mm -hmm. And so just like that hospice nurse told you that your aunt would be able to hear you, even if she could communicate, um, I just think that's such an important thing for everybody to recognize and realize yeah. is those efforts, those constant efforts of showing love as exhausting as it can sometimes be. Um, they feel it, they feel it and they sense it and they, they, they need it. And mm -hmm. it, it, to me, that's just a really wonderful lesson. Well, and I, I think part of it, you know, you talked about that they can receive love. I think they can give love, but it, but they give it differently. So we have to, we have to change what we're looking for in terms of that. Um, with my journey with my mom, I, I talk about the um, levels of unconditional love I didn't know existed. I thought that, you know, I love somebody unconditionally and I just, you know, thought that was cool, but it, it gets to our, our relationships and our connections are so strong. They're, they're such a spiritual bond that is undescribable, you know. And so when my mom was in her late stages and really couldn't communicate, I mean, she couldn't, she couldn't hug me, she couldn't hold my hand, I'd have to hold hers, I could place it in and she could keep it there. But, you know, she just, she didn't have that ability. Uh, that she was really the safest place for me to be because she didn't judge. Yeah. She just accepted me. Yeah. No, and you could you could feel that you just it's um it's unexplainable. And, and sometimes they'll surprise you. I know my friend, even when she wasn't able to speak anymore, when we would leave after a visit, I would say I love you, and she would say I love you. Yep. And yep. I've been there an hour and a half, and she hadn't. She was you know jibber jabber things. Yep. You, but the I love you. I mean that came right out. Oh, there's there's so many moments that people have if they're willing to try and if they're willing to be patient. You know, my mom, uh, we went through um, all of her advanced care stuff again because she had been she'd been in the nursing home like, oh gosh, 10, 11 years. And um, no one expected her to live that long there. And uh, so we she was having a difficult time. We were putting her on hospice. So they said, well, we better go through all of, you know, the do not uh, resuscitate and all that stuff. And so we're sitting in the room and my mom is sleeping and, um, and I'm, I'm still teary eyed, even though I know all the answers, I just wanted to hear from her. Right. And so the nurse leaves the room. Here I go again. The nurse leaves the room. And um, I just said, mom, is this what you want? And she was in this big jury wheelchair, just sleeping and she turned her head and she looked at me with this big smile on her face and she goes, yep. And she <laughs> went back to sleep. I was pretty clear, but she just gave me this huge gift. You know, she just, she just drilled it up and said, Lori needs this right now. And she did that several times. And if we can look at those moments as gifts, you know, that they really are there for us. It's incredible. It's That's absolutely right. incredible. And I want to take advantage of you bringing up the fact that you were having to go through this and you're talking mm -hmm. to your mom about it. 
Um, when somebody does get a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's, I really encourage people because only about 35% of us have gotten our directives done or advanced care planning directives done. Um, have that conversation early if you haven't already had it with your loved one and start with the perfect last day. That's kind of a fun way to get it started. But do not wait once you get that diagnosis because you really want those decisions to be your loved one's decisions so that when they can't communicate any longer, you're not stressing and angsting about the decisions you're making. You have a real peace knowing that you're doing what your loved one wanted, which is exactly the gift your mother gave you. Yep. You didn't have to think about it or question it because she made it very clear. Yes, that's what yep. I want. Yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and the other example I'll tell you, um, uh, elderly lady was talking with a colleague of mine and he was saying that, you know, she really, you know, she needed to get her advanced care planning documents done. And she said, I don't have to worry about that. My, my daughter will handle all that. And her daughter was standing behind her. <laughs> and she said, um, she, knows, she knows what I want. And that daughter's face was like, <laughs> and she said, I have no idea what you want. Yeah. So, so if you have a family member that doesn't want to talk about it, mm -hmm. help them understand that. It is going to put you and your other family members in such a painful, stressful, excuse me, place if they make you guess. Yeah. Don't make me guess. I really need you to tell me. And you can't describe every scenario that will happen, but they can give you enough that you feel real comfortable with the decisions you're making when they can no longer speak. Yeah. Well, I know we, we had that conversation just my daughter and I, and I want to be cremated. And she's like, but mom, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want you burnt. And I said, oh, you know, I made a joke out of it. And I said, honey, let me be little once in my life. You know, I, that. I, I don't believe that I'm in that body anymore. And you know, the world needs more space. So let them have it, you know, throw me up in the air and, and let me go. And, and that was, That's right. you know, but, um, and, and I mean, we did this year, probably 10 years ago and she still, she still struggles with that, but she knows it's what I want. Yeah, absolutely. And, and these are conversations we should really be having with, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we should be having them in high school, you know, preparing kids when they're 18 years old for real life situations. Uh, there's been so many, um, friends of mine whose kids have gotten sick and they, you know, or been in a, in a horrible accident <coughs> who have needs and then they can't, they can't even talk to the medical professionals, but yet they're paying the insurance and they're doing all of that. And there's, it can cause families huge amounts of stress. So um, these conversations are extremely important to have. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, um, this hour has gone by so fast, um, is the support that hospice gives care partners. Um, is absolutely incredible. Um, and, and everyone who I've ever talked to who has had somebody on hospice has said, I can't believe what they've done for me. Well, it, it is absolutely as much about the family as it is the patient. Mm -hmm. Because what happens with the patient affects the family and vice versa. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why grief counseling is so important, is after the loss, they can go to grief counseling at hospice and there's no fee. The support they give the caregivers, uh, the care partners, as well as the, as the uh, patient, it's for both. 
and the grief counseling that is provided after the loss is so important. And what we were talking about, about the advanced care planning, is the grief counselors can tell when those conversations happened in advance. Mm-hmm. Because when they did not happen in advance, there's so much guilt, questioning, did I do the right thing? And when they have had those conversations in advance, and the family member had that peace that they were doing what the loved one would have wanted, a huge difference, just night and day difference in the process afterward. Yeah, it's it's really important. There's a lot of um, dementia-friendly communities and and, um, age-friendly communities that are popping up all over, and this is a great topic. I think that's have for education. I know we've we've done them a couple times in our um, in the city of Roseville in Minnesota, and it's always very well attended. People they want the information, even though it's hard to do. Um, we actually, you know, when I was married, even with my folks, they didn't have a will, and we knew that that needed to get in order, and and they were very uncomfortable doing that. My my folks were very blue collar and. And we don't have that much. It's not necessary. And I'm like, it really is. It really is. Yep. And so to make them feel more comfortable, my husband and I did the same. Oh, good. So it wasn't about end of life. It was about good living. It, you know, and and I think if we can shift that that perception and that myth that, you know, all of this is about, you know, the end of life. No, it's about living life well. It's about being prepared. It's it's just like any other aspect. It's just another stage. And if we prepare way ahead of time, it just makes it so much easier. Yeah, that's exactly right. Advanced care planning is called advance. Yeah. Because you're supposed <laughs> to do it in advance of, the, yeah. of an issue or a crisis in the unexpected. That's the whole. Uh, that's the whole idea behind advanced care planning. Yep, and people seem to forget about that, and they just automatically go right to the end. But, you know, it's it's normal. I think for people to want to procrastinate and not deal with uncomfortable things. But, you know, just like with dementia, when I first got into this, it was such a such an uncomfortable conversation, and people felt so isolated. And not that people still don't. Don't get me wrong there. But we've come a long ways about having a conversation and giving people a safe space to have that conversation. <laughs> Do you think that it's kind of similar to where back in the day cancer was this taboo topic, but now yeah. everybody knows somebody with cancer? Yeah. Same thing with Alzheimer's or dementia. You cannot find somebody that doesn't hasn't had that touch them in some way. Yeah. Or at least they know somebody that has touched them in some way. So it's just it. it I think. I guess the silver lining is that people are talking about it more yeah, and figuring out ways of how can we enhance this person's life as much, as much as humanly possible. Yeah. And I, I think it's about people understanding we're much more alike than different, mm-hmm. you know, and a symptom doesn't make who you are. And, and I think one of the shifts that, um, still has to take place in the medical field and in communities at large is that I think we've been trained to focus and identify the symptom, but what we really have to focus on is the emotional feeling that that symptom has for both the patient and those caring for them and and get that to calm down, to get that to be comfortable because there's always a reason behind 
you know, their reaction and their, you know, their behavior is really truly just a reaction and a signal to us that something's not right. One of the things the memory um, care unit does that I'm aligned with is they have a, a simulation. Mm -hmm. So they'll bring in case managers and social workers and then, of course, our staff. And they have these uh, goggles and different things that that you now can sort of sensorily mm -hmm. understand what somebody with Alzheimer's is going through as far as their vision and their inability to walk exactly right. And it, it just it's a really wonderful kind of walking in their shoes for a yeah. minute that really raises that understanding and empathy and that emotional connection with this person with the disease yeah yeah those uh, virtual dementia tours I know there's a couple of companies out there doing that now are so powerful so, really so powerful really and it just gets us to look at things a little bit different but I I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing and um, the conversation you know that we had today I think was brilliant and will help a lot of people have a much, much better understanding and hopefully both um, families and the medical profession will will feel a little bit more comfortable with, you know, hospice is a hopeful good thing. It really is a, it's a mindset. It's a choice, just like everything else. You know, we go down the rabbit hole and we can, we can go to this spot of grief or we can, we can really try to make somebody's last days comfortable and enjoyable and memorable, not just for them, but for us. And, um, you know, and that stuff lives on forever. And there's, there's just a great, there's a great gift in, in death, just like there is with birth, um, if we allow it. Yeah. In many cases, it is the perfect continuum of care mm -hmm. when somebody has reached that point in their life. Yeah. And everyone's going to deal with it a little bit different, but you know, there's so many people going through this whole process. And like you had said earlier, too, some people will pop back like my mom did, you know, because she all of a sudden she had a music therapist and she had this one on one and there's volunteers. And I mean, there's so many different people that come just to be with them. Right. And and, and I think it's about, you know, that connection again is built. And, um, and it's a beautiful thing to, to watch and, and to watch people serve the way they do is incredible. Yes. Yeah, I, I've never been more honored than to educate and, and talk about the amazing work that they do, um, both the long-term care facility staff and the hospice staff. They love what they do, and it's just really obvious. Yeah. Now, Tina, people can get you um, on your website and your website is it's about how you live.com. And then um, they can get you via email at Tina um, at that URL um, as well. And then do you want to give out a phone number or not? I have, oh, sure. but I always oh. double check. So um, <laughs> why don't you give out the phone number that you want? Absolutely. Um, three, three, six, six, Five five zero two zero zero. Okay, so that's three three six six five five zero two zero zero. And now you all you speak and train as well. And um, I can imagine that that keeps you very busy as well because you're just a wealth of information. And again, an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today. So thank you so much. Oh my goodness, it's been my honor, my honor and pleasure, and thank you 
you are getting all the accolades you're getting because of all the amazing work that you do. So the rest of us are appreciative of, of the path that you're paving for the rest of us to sort of trail along behind. <laughs> well, I think we're all walking together, you know. Well, that's true. That's a good yeah. way to, yeah. Yeah. But thank you so much for all you do. Well, thank you. In wrapping up, I'm just going to give a shout out to the people at the Roberto app. If you're not familiar with it, it's something you might want to check into. It's a bunch of video games that um, test your brain function. And you can check on your brain health. You can play it as often as you want. Um, you can get a free trial. Um, and in fact, you can get an extended free trial if you go to my website, alzheimerspeaks.com and put in the code. But again, very inexpensive and very interesting. Some families are doing this as a group. Um, they're actually doing some challenges in the schools and bringing it into business for team building because getting people more aware of their lifestyle and how it affects. So if you're really stressed, your brain might be functioning a little bit different and that's going to point it out to you. And, you know, we can't take action if we're not fully aware. And so I, I just, I, I love that app. Um, the other thing that I wanted to give a shout out to is the Purple Table Reservations. They are kind of in infant stages rolling out, but it's a really cool concept. They're looking for more restaurants to partake in this, so they'll do some training, and then people can, uh, they have an app. If you go to um, purpletables.com, you'll see the app. They've already had requests from people in, and this was a while back, in 44 different states, but they're not in that many. So they want more restaurants to get on board with this. It's fairly inexpensive, but when somebody would make a reservation, they would then get a table that is in a well-lit, quieter area with a trained staff with, with maybe a minimized menu so it's not so confusing. And um, they are not only working just with dementia, but with autism, um, with post-traumatic stress. I mean, there's so many different variables where this could help people out, and it's and it's very unintrusive. No one's going to know. I want to um, wish everybody a happy, brilliant 2018. And, um, you know, I wish I had some flowers since it's May Day, but I don't <laughs> in my hand here to share with you. But have, have a brilliant week, everyone, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.